This morning's scripture reading is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Again, Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This is God's Word. Mark is one of four gospel accounts that chronicles the good news about Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The others are uh, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And a question folks often ask, a question I get a decent amount, is why does there need to be four? Four different accounts, especially. Why do they need to be different? Shouldn't they all be the same? Why are there different details? Well, all four consist of eyewitness testimony from different angles and for the purpose of persuading different audiences, people who care about different facts, different details of Jesus' life. Consider, if you would, and I actually did this this week, I, I um, talked to a policeman, one who interrogates, and I said, you know, what if you interviewed four different people viewing the same event and they gave the exact same detail? Like, to the letter, he said, well, you know, that's way too fishy. That would absolutely sound like a conspiracy. We don't see it much, but every once in a while, you will hear that. But he said, you know, likewise, if we, if we interview four different people who supply very different accounts, you know, it's, we know it's made up. It's hearsay. It's conjecture. That there are four Gospels should rather instill confidence in each, since real people witness, witness real events to the end that we hold in our hands this blended overlap of the same stories and speeches, along with distinctive writing styles and audiences. Mark wrote his account from the very cosmopolitan city of Rome, for people mostly of a non-Jewish background, and from the point of view of a very blunt, risk-taking bloke named Simon Peter, a disciple of Jesus. 
as a leader of the twelve apostles, Peter likely approached, was approached and likely even felt pressure to write something about Jesus after Jesus had risen from the dead and then ascended into heaven. But he was ever on the move. And you can imagine Peter saying something like, hey, look, while I'm still young, I'm going to let someone else write. Some young, some young buck write this. I'm going to speak and I'm going to act for Jesus. He preferred instead to let someone else interview him between visits, healings, and preaching the good news about Jesus. In fact, one early church father, Eusebius, basically says this is kind of what happens. And so Mark becomes the first gospel written. But in a sense, it's really Peter's gospel. Now, Mark's purpose in writing is to persuade his readers from regarding this man, Jesus, regarding him as a man from Nazareth of Galilee to trusting Jesus, as it says in verse 1, the Son of God. And So now I lay before you this morning a mammoth opportunity that the Gospel of Mark as a whole and this morning's passage specifically affords us, and it's this. Jesus is universally believed to be a man from Nazareth, but can be trusted as your God. People believe this man existed. There's plenty of uh, extra-biblical writings that Jesus existed. That's not debated among historians. We all know he's existed, and we all know the legacy that he's left. They believe he's a man. He can be trusted as your God. You're not going to hear this morning many stories about uh, you know, bunny rabbits finding the miracle of friendship <laughs> and inspiring moments like that, or some man running a marathon and achieving victory, holding his son in his hands. I don't have that this morning for you, nor do I have three creative and practical suggestions of how to love your neighbor won't be tacked on at the end, because this introduction to the ministry of Jesus in Mark's gospel doesn't call for either. Rather, Mark calls for a decision based on the person of Jesus. To start out deciding, or even decide today, to trust Jesus as your God. Why doesn't Mark come out and say that explicitly, you might ask? It's not his style. Mark wants you to see, with your own eyes, Jesus as the perfect God-man who has come to reconcile God and man. He wants you to see this for yourself. So while He tells you right away in verse 1 that Jesus is the Son of God. We don't actually see anyone around Jesus who listens to him, follows him, hears about him, say this, say as much, until around chapter 8. Mark keeps the suspense building. He wants you to see this for yourself, that he is the Son of the living God. Mark wants you to experience the movement from the Jesus we know existed as a 30-year-old male somewhere in Palestine in the first century, to Jesus who reigns as king over the heavens and the earth for all centuries. You have to get that for yourself. You have to feel and sense and begin to trust Jesus as he moves forward to reveal who he is, just as he did back in the first century. In fact, Mark will use one of his favorite words to move us along, bit by bit, from scene to scene, We see it here twice in our reading this morning, both in verse 12 and verse 10, immediately. 
immediately is, uh, indicates a turn in action or the introduction of a brand new event. It's a way of remark to say, here's what happened next. All right, you got that story, you got that quote, here's what happened next. That's how Mark's gospel reads. A bunch of turns. As the gospel turns, if you will, seven or eight turns with one major turn in the middle. And so we call the series as a whole, Mark, the king's reign. That's the first half. The second half is Mark, the king's ransom. All right, so Mark the king's reign, Mark the king's ransom. It's going to be a long time until we get to that part. There's 16 chapters. All right, we will treat each little turn, each seven or eight turn, like, like a new series in Jesus' ministry. All right, so we start with the king's authority and priority. That will last through most of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And I want to do that because instead of getting ahead of ourselves and rushing to the cross, to the empty tomb, right, Good Friday, Easter, we'll try as much as possible to get on the ground and experience these moments of getting to know Jesus as Peter did. With every turn, getting to further know, and hopefully further trust Jesus as your God. In today's passage, Mark makes an explicit claim that it is God himself who turns the action and the course of history. It is God the Holy Spirit who is causing these immediately's. So it is the Spirit who breaks in immediately to anoint Jesus as king. It is the Spirit who drives Jesus immediately into the wilderness to be tempted. Every time we see Jesus move, or even his arrival hinted at, we see God. Very explicitly, very obviously, God is there to be seen or heard. So we see in this passage, Jesus, God anointed, God appointed, and God giving. God anointed, God appointed, God giving, and as such, we can trust him to be our God. All right, so first, let's look at Jesus, God anointed. In verses 9 through 11, look at me, look with me, if you will, this morning in the Bibles you have. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. He was baptized by John in the Jordan, Jordan River. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. First thing we'll notice here is that at Jesus' crowning, earth gets a glimpse of eternal love. We get a glimpse here of a relationship that has existed and from which proceeds all of creation and every good thing. You hear the delight of God the Father. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. Notice also the emphasis is not on the eyewitnesses, but on Jesus seeing the Spirit descending as he comes out of the water. It's Jesus who sees the Spirit. It's Jesus to whom the Father says, you are my beloved Son. In other words, this moment of love and honor is one that the triune God is sharing. We just happen to get a window into it. The Bible teaches that God is one essence 
who exists simultaneously in three distinct per- persons. And if that drives your mind batty, I understand. It is hard to understand. And I won't try to explain this away, but I do want to share with you why it is so important that God is three persons. If God goes solo, his love and his honor becomes a curved love and a curved honor. Love and honor curved back onto itself, boomeranged upon itself. And curvatus in se was the phrase Augustine used for this. Life or love curved in on itself. We often see in strictly monotheistic religions, we often see that the result in harsh ethical conduct based on aggression, self-aggression and fear. Why is it? Because it's one looking out for self. If God's like that, then the followers will be like that. So aggression, fear. If God is dual, love and honor are exclusive. Like like a two-way street with no intersections. Just exclusive. It means a couple things. One, that means spirituality is just me and God. It's just me and God. One of the things that does spirituality based on dualism is usually accompanying them by doubt to wonder whether you are good enough for that God. Spiritual enough, balanced enough to occupy one side of the street. Compared to others, am I deserving? You're always doubting, am I good enough for this God? Because it's, it's this exclusive relation. No one else is let in. Am I the one to have this relationship with God? But three gods, three gods represents a communal love, a community love. There are intersections everywhere in this kind of love. They're spread around so that love doesn't stagnate. It's been like that since the beginning of of time. God's character spreads love and the fact that he is one God and three persons, out of which comes our creation. Because God wants to make more intersections into his love, he creates mankind. That's a wonderful thing. It's what C.S. Lewis calls the divine dance as each member of the Trinity responds to each other. And there's no stagnation. And Jesus invites us to participate, to be his plus one to the dance. The church is the fourth dance partner. You know what this means? Think about what this means for life. At the end of Jesus' time on earth, he prays a long prayer to his father in front of the disciples. You can find it in John chapter 17. And he ends that prayer saying, I have made you known. Father, I have made you known to these people, and I will continue to make you known to them in order that the love that you have for me might be in them. The love of God the Father eternal for God the Son eternal might be in human beings. See what that means? You're trusting Jesus being his plus one. You don't just get a love between a human and a God. You get to participate in a love between a God and a God. And a God. (laughs) That's incredible. It may have blown your mind at some point in your life to think, man, it's amazing that God loves me. 
It's amazing he loves a human like myself. He doesn't just love you as a human being. He invites you to participate in an eternal love between a God and a God. It's amazing. Last time we got a window into all members of the triune God at work was all the way back to creation. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, in the beginning, we're told, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's God the Father there. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. All three members of the Trinity are here. Do you see them? Got a little bit of a where's Waldo. Where's Jesus, for instance? Did Did I miss it? Is he there in the striped shirt? I don't know. He is here. Jesus is the word of God that the Father speaks and creation happens. John's gospel says this. He actually opens his gospel saying this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus, he goes on to say, is literally the exegesis or the translation of who God is. God is in heaven. Jesus translates God so we can understand him in earthly ways, earthly language, in the flesh. That's significant because when God speaks into creation, it is the word who links God's essence, all of who God is, into tangible creation, into the stuff we can feel and touch. And he still is. We can touch Jesus. We can can feel him. He he touched people. He healed them. When he he healed people, he often touched them. But back to Mark. (laughs) We have here in Mark a recreation. Notice, it's the Spirit of God in Genesis hovering over the water that we see here in Mark. A dove. Why a dove? Doves don't swoop in like an eagle or a hawk or a bird of prey. A dove, gentle, hovering, floating above the waters of baptism. This is very purposeful, this imagery. Because just, and here's the point, just as God brought order out of that which is formless and void, so too does the Spirit anoint Jesus to bring order out of life that is formless and void. God created the world to be that way, it got messed up. We have messed it up. Jesus came to bring order again to lives that are formless and void. A guy named Henry David Thoreau once said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Right? Without form, without purpose. Yeah, sometimes we have little mini goals and little mini aims and we, we achieve them. And how many times you sit back and think, you know, what am I really doing here? What am I really accomplishing here? What, am I, what, what is this all for? Without a greater purpose than self-service, our lives remain quietly shapeless, without form. Like jello without a mold. This same Jesus who invites you into a divine dance teaches you how to dance and then to invite others into it. He gives you a mission, a role, a purpose 
forms your life to make your life be about dancing and inviting others into the dance, delighting in God and inviting others into the same delight, which is the mold for which we were all born. That's why Jesus comes into this world. Okay, second thing we see here, it's like a big thing, is Jesus is God-appointed. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus into the wilderness. Then he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. So much as we could say here. I'll just say a couple things. First, I want us to see that Jesus was appointed to face evil as a man, and more specifically, as the man. So when people call out at sporting events, you the man! They're all wrong. <laughs> that person's not the man. Jesus is the man. When man sinned against God in the garden, he handed over his rulership to Satan. God actually gave man the privilege, because he was made in God's image, to be a mini-ruler. And he gave him the earth to rule over. But when he rebelled against God... Man effectively handed over the rulership. He said, I don't want to rule anymore because I've chosen my own way. And so Satan picks up the baton, the crown of the world. Satan's an evil ex-angel damned to hell, and so he's hell-bent on bringing everyone else down with him. Now, God is always fair unless he's being outrageously merciful. (laughs) But he's always fair. He always plays by his own rules. If nothing else, you can say that God does this. That means the only way to get back the kingdom of earth is through a man. Has to reverse Adam's actions. Be the reverse of Adam. Or the second Adam, it's often called. Adam entered a perfect world and fell. This man must enter a fallen world and live perfectly in the midst of it. That was his job. So the Holy Spirit is the one has the plan to drive Jesus into the wilderness. This is a strange verse. Like, why would God's teammate, Jesus' teammate here, drive Jesus temptation? Because he had to be the man that Adam wasn't. He had to face pure fallenness, pure evil, and defeat it. And you might object, well, it's not the same. If I look at Jesus, he's also God. He has superpowers, right? He goes in the desert. He gets tempted, but he's... The issue, though, is Jesus doesn't actually use his divinity in the fight against the temptation of Satan, but rather relies on his Father's divinity. I'll explain what I mean. He doesn't use his divinity. He relies completely on his Father's divinity. Elsewhere in Matthew and Luke's Gospels, we're told the details of how Satan attacks Jesus. He starts, here we go, Matthew uh, 4, 3-4. through four. The tempter came and he said to Jesus, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus, he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is written in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. I want you to know three man-ish points. Satan's 
strategy of attack is to attack Jesus as a man. He he attacks Jesus' hunger. Secondly, Jesus, though he's addressed even by Satan as God, you notice that? Son of God. Jesus responds and identifies as a man. You call me God. But out here in this temptation, I'm going to act as a man. The man. Who shall not live by bread alone. And Jesus overcomes, thoroughly, Jesus overcomes temptation by radical dependence on his heavenly Father, feeding not on bread, but on God's word and on God's promises. He relies on the Father just as we would. In other words, Jesus doesn't feed Satan with lightning bolts, x-ray vision, or my personal favorite, heat-seeking lasers, right? Like from the eyes. <laughs> that would be awesome. As a man, I just like that sort of thing. But instead, even better, much better for us, he defeats Satan with the same word of God available to us. God played by his own rules, suffered but wins as a man. Why is that important? You can play by his rules and you will suffer, but you can also win. You can also win. Yes, you, 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 you can so radically rely on God and the word and the truth he has provided for us to win, to strengthen us for the battle. doesn't mean being perfect because when you fail, that same word of life and truth reminds you that you're forgiven through your trust in Jesus. Isn't that awesome? One other thing we see here, Jesus is appointed to defeat evil decisively without defeating us. He defeats evil decisively without defeating us. It's noteworthy that the la- this is the last time we see Satan show up in the Gospel of Mark. After this, it's gone. Having resisted every kind and every, every degree of temptation Satan could throw at him, Jesus Christ proves <clears throat> he will defeat evil. How do we know this? 40 days. He did it for 40 days. Throughout the Bible, 40 days is a sign of testing or proving. So for instance, Moses on Mount Sinai for 40 days, alone with God, trusting God's leadership above even his own as the people frolic beneath. Rains of the flood in Noah's day, how long were they? 40 days. Trusting God would make a new way of the world. Goliath presented himself to Israel for how long? 40 days. While Israel nervously waited for someone to sum up the faith to stand up to this 10 foot tall warrior of the Philistines. There are actually tons more examples, there are just a few. So, if every other time, every other time Jesus encounters evil, it's mop up duty. He has withstood the trial. He has proved himself. The rest is mop-up duty. Every time we see uh, Satan's minions and demonic forces, and Jesus heals or Jesus delivers, he's just mopping up. He's mopping up. So then, why don't we get mopped up? Inside each of us is that incurvatus in say, life curved in upon itself. Right? 
living for self, loving self, which inevitably results in hurting others and rebelling against our God. But while Jesus defeats all other kinds of hurt that he encounters, Jesus doesn't defeat us. I thought Jesus played by his own rules. Why doesn't he take us out if there's evil within us? Because years later at the cross, Jesus would choose to be defeated, lose the life that we should have lost, and then rise from the dead, proving to all manner of people that he is a God worth trusting. He is a God worth trusting by appearing to them for guess how long? 40 days. He has proven himself. He's defeated death and evil once for all. We are not going to get to the third point this morning. Mark moves along immediately, but I can't even get out of the first sermon. It's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll pick this up again next week. I just want to say this. You know, a couple times a month, I get to have the same but glorious conversation, in many ways, with someone at sunrise. It goes something like this. You know, I've heard about Jesus growing up, but here at sunrise, I've, I've gotten on the right track with God. Or I pray, you know, I prayed a prayer and confirmation class with my mom or dad, with a youth leader. Or I prayed in some desperate situation, but only now do I actually relate with God and relate with other people who are in my community group, for instance. Or they say, I, you know, I've done church community work, I've even served as a leader, but now through what I hear on Sundays, I get that it's not what I do that counts and makes me right with God what he has done for me. I get that now. Or people often say, you know, I've always believed, I believe Jesus died on a cross, forgave sin, or at least I believe that was more true than anything else. But now it's real to me. In each case, I want to explain to you what's happened, what the Bible says has happened. In each case, you've moved from belief that Jesus is a man from Nazareth to trusting that Jesus to be your God. Prayers, doing church stuff, hearing or knowing about God, the mental belief or assent that Jesus is God, none of this reconciles you to a holy God. I'll be very clear about that. None of those things, doing good things, doing good work, caring about others, praying a prayer when you're a kid, right? mentally believing that Jesus died on a cross reconciles you with a holy God. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, says that even the demons believe in the Son of God and shudder. Trust is required. Trusting Jesus with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Trusting your life to him. I plead with you, if you haven't, trust in Jesus today. He's worthy of your trust. Let's pray. Father, this text is so rich. It's so amazing how throughout history you had a plan. It began with creation. We see that even this morning, Lord. You would save, you would rescue people from their life curved in upon itself, from selfishness, from a formless life, from a life void of meaning and direction. You would defeat evil and give us a way that we can resist temptation. All these needs that we have, you meet Jesus as our rescuer. Father, I pray this morning for those of us who come in and, and 
Maybe they pray. Maybe you prayed a prayer when you were a kid or you went to church and even you called yourself a Christian or a more Christian at least than anything else. Or you kind of more believed in Jesus than anything else. But you haven't yet trusted your life to Jesus to be your God, to run your life, give him the keys to your kingdom. I pray this morning that you would, even now, you would say, Lord, I know I've lived life for myself, but I want to trust you as my God. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.